Well, if you would believe it, today is the last Sunday that we're studying the book of Philippians. It's been 14 weeks since we began, and we have realized that this book is not just a little book about joy, but it is a book about partnering for gospel growth. It's not about little verses that we can remind ourselves of, of to live as Christ as die as gain, beneficial verses like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but a book that calls us to live in humility for the purpose of unity, for the progress of the gospel. It's a book that displays to us what could be a barrier when we partner in gospel work. And specifically, the barrier here that we come across at the book of Philippians is that of pride, a lack of unity. And so Paul and God, they have been reminding us that if we want to move forward in gospel growth, we need to take upon a certain mindset of humility, a mindset of a living kingdom-minded. And so about three months ago, I mentioned why this book is important for us as we began our study at the beginning of February. And I want to refresh our minds. First and foremost, this book realigns Christ as the center of our solar system and the motivation for ministry. If we were to ask the question, what drives Paul to go and do missions work and being in jail, still caring about all the churches, it is the glory of Jesus Christ. It is his desire to see Christ proclaimed and honored in every situation. And this is why Paul says in chapter 3, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so this passion and this fire and this zealousness for the Lord, his zeal, is what keeps driving him. His eager expectation is not that he's going to be ashamed, but that Christ will be honored whether by life or by death. Christ was the center of Paul's solar system. In chapter 2, he presents Christ as the role model for humility, the one who we are supposed to imitate. In chapter 3, he says, Christ is the one that we press on towards, ultimately, heaven, but the one who is in heaven, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. In chapter 4, Christ is the one who gives us the strength and power to go through various circumstances of our life, like we read last week. I can do all things through Christ who continually gives me strength. Because it is all the resources that I have within me that are in Christ and not the external resources that I lean on. Second thing that this little book teaches us is that the message of Christ is so important that we should partner for it as a church with those who are spreading the gospel. Now think about this for a moment. If we were to choose some of the most important topics in Scripture, or there's some of the most important topics in the universe, we'd probably say number one would be the person of God, the attributes of God. We would love to study the attributes of God, his character, his faithfulness, his love, his kindness. We would say this is what Scripture is about. It reveals to us the Godhead, and we would be correct. At the same time, if we were thinking about another important topic, it would be the glory of God. We would say God does everything for his glory. He creates the sons and daughters, bring afar from the ends of the earth, those who are created for my glory. All things are done for his glory, whether eating or drinking. We live for his glory and breathe for his glory. He created everything for him, through him, and to him are all things. But what is the one topic that bridges the person of God and the glory of God? What is one topic that combines both of these? And the answer is the gospel. 
the gospel displays to us the character and the attributes of God. And ultimately, the gospel leads to the glory of God because people who do not know Christ come to know him through the good news of what Christ has done, bringing glory to God. And so, the gospel is important. And we know that here at Gateway Bible Church. And this little book reminds us of the importance of the gospel, that we should partner for it. We began in Philippians chapter 1, if you can look there with me, with these words in verse 3. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And if we look at the, the end of the book, the passages that we just read in chapter 4, verse 15, we see that Paul concludes with the same idea of partnering with the gospel. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. In the beginning of the gospel, there's nobody except you. And so this whole book has been about gospel growth and the hindrances that could cause the gospel to not go forward. The gospel really is the centerpiece for why we gather on Sunday morning to rehearse the gospel. We exist to proclaim the gospel. We read to grow deeper in the gospel. And so this morning, my desire is once again to look at partnership that Paul has with the church at Philippi as he closes this letter. And specifically, the partnership that he has with them is a financial partnership. And before we get into our passage, I want to give us a bigger picture about missions, global and local missions. We read in the book of Isaiah that God is zealous for his glory. Everything that he does is for his glory. We read, for my own sake, my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The answering of prayers is for God's glory. Good works are for his glory. Eating and drinking are for his glory. Everything under the sun, every detail, grand event, everything that God decrees is for his glory. This is the ultimate end. And missions... Our passage of partnering with the gospel are the subordinate ends that lead to the ultimate end of God being glorified on earth. This is where missions fits in the picture of the church. Missions is God-centered. Missions, as we see here in our passage, just as we are doing missions in Bolivia and Ukraine, exists because worship does not exist. That's a quote from John Piper. Missions exist because worship doesn't. What does that mean? It means that there are people in this world who have yet to come to know Jesus Christ. There's people in this world who yet do not worship the living God, but they worship created things. They worship idols. This is the sole reason why missions exist, because there are people who are not yet worshipers of God, and the gospel needs to be proclaimed so that people can hear and receive Christ. Continuing this idea, we read that worship has always been and will always be the ultimate purpose of God in the universe. It has always been the fire that fuels our passion to reach peoples who do not worship the true God through Jesus Christ. 
And we see that the end of this is going to be in the book of Revelation. We see this grand picture of Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who has redeemed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation gathered together worshiping the Lord. I, I read this book recently called Gentle and Lowly, and it speaks about this illustration of a doctor. And the idea is that when was the doctor going to be most overjoyed? Is the doctor going to be most overjoyed just because people know that there is a cure, they know that there's a remedy, they know that there is a solution to their problem? No, the doctor is going to be most overjoyed when the people actually receive the remedy. They receive the solution to their issue. And so in the same way, Christ is most overjoyed when people come to receive the gospel, the solution to all of their problems in life. And this is why Paul has been so passionate about missions in the book of Philippians. And this is why this little book, it really packs a punch about the importance of partnering for global and local missions. We have studied that Epaphroditus was the one who carried the gift to Paul so that the gospel would grow, that the gospel would reach places that have not yet been reached or maybe not have been permeated to the degree that they should be. And this is what has been happening here, if I want to give you a little bit of context before we get to our text. Paul has been traveling on his missionary journeys to share the gospel so that people would be saved and come into a living relationship with Christ. And he's been planting churches, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus, the church at Thessalonica, all these churches. And we read that Paul loves these churches so much that he's always overburdened. He cares for them so much. The daily pressures of the church are upon him. And as he's thinking about these churches, he receives news about what is happening at the church of Philippi, that there is a disagreement between Udiah and Syntec. And he sends them a letter and says, this is how you're going to combat pride and disunity. It is by looking to Christ, who is the example of humility. It is by remembering to walk worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. Paul has been is in jail. It's AD 62. He founded the church in AD 50. It's been about 10 to 12 years since Paul has planted this church. And he says, in the beginning of the gospel, as we read in verse 15, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into this work of partnering with me to spread the gospel except you only. And he commends them in, in this. And so this morning, I want to meditate with you on this idea, steward God's finances for God's purposes. Steward God's finances for God's purposes. It's because ultimately, as we have already heard, God gives us the ability to do the work that he calls us to do. But also God is the one who, who is the owner of all things. Not only does God the giver of the jobs that we have, the health that we have, but God is also the one who gives us the ability to make the money that we make. He owns a cattle on a thousand hill, hills. All is his and he holds it. He's the creator and we are the creation. Therefore, nothing is ours. All is God's. As we have studied in Acts, he gives life and breath to all things. And God calls us to use our resources in ways that honor and glorify him. And so as we look at our passage, we're going to be meditating on partnership. And the first thing we see here is the partnership that is stated. The partnership that is stated. Now, Paul wants to be very sure that the church at Philippi feels excluded. But they feel excluded in a very special way. Look with me in verse 15. He uses 
a redundancy here. First of all, he says, and you Philippians yourselves know. Why does Paul have to signal out that it's the Philippians? He's writing the letter to the church at Philippi. They know he's speaking to them. But he says, you Philippians yourselves. He's highlighting something that he's going to bring up. In the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership. Nobody entered into partnership. There's nobody who was willing to financially support me to do the work of ministry. Paul is drawing attention. He's saying, all right, folks, pay attention. Gather together what is so important. And here it is. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. And the very last phrase, except you only. Paul wants the church to feel excluded. He wants them to feel that they and understand that they are the ones who are the ones who help them to help them to move the gospel forward. If they had not helped them out, the gospel would have come to a screeching halt. Now, the question is, last week we studied this idea that Paul was completely content. He said in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, and then in verse 14, he says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble, kind of saying, thank you for the gift, but I was doing well already. What does Paul mean now that there's nobody who entered into partnership except you only, and then now the gift that you've given me has moved the gospel forward? There's a couple things that we need to clarify. And first is this idea of need. There's two ways that this word need is being used in verse 11. And then once again, in verse 16, where he says, you sent me help for my needs. Not that I'm speaking of being in need in verse 11. You sent help for my needs. In verse 11, the way that Paul is using the word need is this idea of lack or shortage. It's something that's quantifiable. This morning, I was making waffles. It was Waffle Sunday at our home. Although it wasn't sunny outside and it was slightly drizzling, it's still Waffle Sunday, and it's the Lord's Day, so we're going to get together. Now, as I was making waffles, there are some Sundays that I open the fridge, and I need one and three-quarter cup milk, two cups of flour, one tablespoon of, uh, of this, of this uh, what is it called? You guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, and so, sometimes what happens on Sunday morning is I open the fridge, and all of a sudden, I only have one cup of milk. Now, you can still make waffles with one cup of milk. It's not going to be as good as with two cups of milk or one and three quarters, but it'll do the job. This is what it means when Paul is saying that I was lacking or I had a little bit of shortage. I could still move forward in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need because I've learned to be content with, with what was lacking, not having enough. But here in verse 16, when he says that I was in need, Paul is saying this, I had no milk at all. What he's saying, I did not even have the ingredients to actually finish the job that I was called to do as an apostle. That I was actually lacking the resources to fulfill and complete the project that Christ has called me to do. And you church at Philippi, you saw that. And you sent and fulfilled that need so the work of ministry could move forward. And this is the idea of partnership, is it not? And Paul says that the, in the beginning of the gospel, no church entered into partnership. The idea of partnering with someone is fulfilling a need that they might have. What a beautiful thing it is for us to partner with the churches that we partner with in Bolivia and Ukraine. 
We partner in various ways. We go physically to Bolivia and help build certain things that they need, whether it is at the school or at the church. At the same time, we spiritually partner with them by doing Simeon Trust. So we're la- we are fulfilling a need that they have. There's a lack, and so we come as a church, come alongside, and we partner together to supply that need. Same thing that happened happened in Ukraine. And so here, Paul is speaking about partnership in two ways. The first one is the common bond and furthering the gospel, which is what I just explained. The common bond and furthering the gospel. Here we see that the partnership was specifically, in verse 15, in giving and receiving. So it's a financial partnership. We see here that Epaphroditus He brought the gift, the financial gift. So Paul wants to emphasize the importance of how the church of Philippi has helped him. And then we also see this idea of partnership or this word fellowship, koinonia, as this idea of the church's corporate fellowship with one another. We see it in verse 1, the fellowship of the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 5, the fellowship of the gospel. In chapter 3, there is also the fellowship of his sufferings. And so this is not just having something in common, but Christian fellowship is possessing eternal life within the heart, possessing the common thing, which is the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Fellowship is more than having a name on a church roll or being present at a meeting. It is sharing the deepest things about us, and the deepest thing about us is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that the church has partnered with him financially to spread the gospel forward. And not only that, they're also partners in not only gospel work, but they're partners also in the fact that they share common realities. I want us to notice a couple things from these first couple verses. We see that it is a church that enters into partnership. Parachurch organizations are good, But when we think about missions, the church is the one that should be connected with the missionary. Parachurch organizations are good, but the responsibility that God places for missions work is upon the church. And there's many reasons why this is the case. One of them being that the church knows the people that it sends. The church knows the character of the people that that are sent out to do missions work. Oftentimes, parachurch organizations do not do thorough enough work to see who is going and doing missions work. At the same time, it's because this partnership goes deeper than simply finances. This is a partnership, and it is a bond of love and care. If we look at chapter 1, we see here that Paul says in verses 7, that it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers with me of grace. It is a church that can connect with a missionary, with the one who is spreading the gospel, and they hold each other in their hearts because they are working side by side for the progress of the gospel. The mandate is given to the church. So it's beautiful to see that this is what is happening here. It is encouraging that we can support Roman and Matthias and sharing their financial and their spiritual needs. And so as we 
get to the end of our first points, one of the things we need to do is that we need to recognize the great need for a gift. We need to recognize that there is a great need for the gift. There are so many unreached peoples groups in this world. And if uh, you want to know the statistics financially, if we're talking about the unreached people group, especially the 1040 window, my friend Vijay and his wife came and visited a couple years ago and they explained this is what it looks like. The 1040 window is the most unreached window or people's groups in the world, yet only 1% of financial resources go to this region. 1% of resources out of the 100% of financial resources that go into missions work. Now, partially the reason is because there are not a lot of missionaries out in the 1040 window because it is tough. Because there is great persecution, because it is hard to enter into these countries. But there is a great need there. Recognize the great need for a gift. We need to be aware of when gifts are needed. And the church of Philippi noticed that and they seized the opportunity to help Paul out. As we began a few months ago, we were to embrace certain viewpoints about who we are as we're studying the book of Philippians. And one of them was we need to view ourselves as partners. And now coming back around to the end of the book, my question to you is this. Do you view yourself as a partner in gospel ministry? Remember, Paul said he put himself in the same playing field with Timothy. He said Paul and Timothy. Not only that, with the overseers and deacons leveling the playing field and said everyone is a part of gospel work. You're all partakers with me of grace striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so we partner to stand firm and we partner to live worthy of the gospel. And this is the partnership that is stated here that Paul brings up. This is what the partnership looks like. It began when he left Macedonia and no church entered except you only. He wants to make sure that the church of Philippi is excluded in a good way. Second, what we see here is partner, the partnership is explained. And the first one was just a general description of what partnership is and when it started. The second one is an explanation of this partnership and specifically the goal of partnership. Paul says here two times in verse 17, using this word seek, it's present tense. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. To a certain degree, Paul is needing to clarify what he means about when he received this gift. The gift was not specifically for Paul's benefit of comfort or abundance because he already stated he has learned to live when he was in lack or in abundance, plenty or in need. But what he is saying here is that this gift has led to the advancement of the gospel. He's not saying I'm praising you for your help, so please send me more financial support. He's not acting like a missionary who is saying, give me more and more and more, but he wants to highlight the fruit of what has happened because of this partnership. This partnership has helped to advance God's kingdom. And specifically here, we see that I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Not that I seek the gift in itself, but on the contrast, on the other hand, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
What is the fruit that increases to their credit? They're getting daily profits, which will be credited to their account on the day of Christ. They are going to be taken care of by the Lord, which is what happens in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. They're not going to have any lack, although they were in a great lack, as we studied last week, that they were in extreme poverty. The churches of Macedonia, there was an extreme poverty that was going on. Yet, although they were in extreme poverty, they still supported Paul in his ministry. The effect of this gift is now explained in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I, I'm, I'm satisfied. I've received full payment. Thank you, church. But not only that, it's received full payment and more. I am abounding. That is the word that is used there. The word that is used of is abounding. He has plenty and enough. And thirdly, he says, he is well supplied. This idea of supplied is not only that he is filled, but he is complete. He is complete. He's in a state in which he has been given all things necessary to move forward in the ministry of spreading the gospel. I have everything that I need. You have completed. You have, you have given me that one cup of milk that I was missing, we could say. You have supplied that, and now I can continue to move forward in what God has called me to do as an apostle. How did this happen? I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you have sent. The church sent a gift through Epaphroditus. And Paul cannot just say the gift, but he explains this gift. Isn't that what Paul always does? He'll state a word, and then he will go off on a tangent explaining a certain idea. And after three more sentences, he comes back to the main idea. Paul loves to explain things. I'm well supplied, received a gift. How does he explain this gift? A fragrant offering, first of all. This is a fragrant offering. It's, it smells good. It's something that's desirable, something that is delightful. This is fragrant. This gift has been a fragrant offering. It's been good to my soul. It's been good to my senses. It has supplied the needs that we have. And second of all, he explains this gift as a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. So this is also a sacrifice that God accepts and a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Now why so? Really, a, a financial gift is pleasing to the Lord. A financial gift is, is a sacrifice that's acceptable. It is because the fruit of what this gift, this financial support has now accomplished. And the fruit of this is that Christ is now going to be able to be proclaimed in areas where he might not have been because of the lack of the gift. But now that the gift has been supplied, Christ is going to be glorified. Christ is going to be honored. So the fruit of this gift is Paul is abounding and well supplied. The fruit of their partnership is that this is going to increase to their credit. And this overall is explaining a joy, a fellowship, and a kindred of spirit that they have. Now a few things that we know from the context of what has been going on in the church of Philippi and with Paul, one of the things that we must notice is that the gifts that we give must hurt. I, I know we all live in America and giving a gift to somebody 
doesn't always hurt. We're able to because we have an abundance. And so giving a gift at a birthday party is not that we're scraping, you know what I mean, our uh, coin collection in our car or going into our kid's piggy bank and saying, do you want to buy this gift for your friend? We have an abundance and so we give the gift. But here, Paul is saying that they have sacrificed because they didn't have even a lot of their own needs met, yet they sacrificed for the good of the gospel. Giving should hurt to a certain degree. When you're looking at your bank accounts and you're wondering, what am I going to give? And you're thinking, well, I cannot buy this or that thing if I give. And it kind of hurts a little bit. That should be good. We are moving forward and giving for the progress of the gospel. So we realize that giving is not really situational because if we looked at the situation at the church of Philippi, we would have said they have no ability to give. But it wasn't situational. Their gift was a hard attitude. It's not because, oh, the Lord blessed me more this month, so they gave to Paul. No, it was because they had this desire to see Christ proclaimed and known in the regions where he has not been yet proclaimed and preached. And so this passage is not teaching us to send more money to people in need. This passage is teaching us to partner for gospel growth, to send money to people who are doing the work of ministry. And so, as we think about those who we partner with, we can rejoice in the ultimate end of the gift. Isn't it a joy to see and hear what Roman is able to accomplish in Ukraine? Isn't it a joy to hear and see what Matthias is able to accomplish in Bolivia using the gifts that we send? We rejoice, just like Paul rejoiced, of the fruit that increased to their credit. Now, Paul turns to the Philippian church and he encourages them with these words that we find in verse 19. He says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so first we saw the partnership stated, partnership explained, now partnership supplied. Partnership supplied. We see here the one who supplies in the ministry. We see the one who, according to his riches and glory in Christ, is going to supply every single need that the believers at Philippi have. If God calls us to a work, and God calls us to do a work, he's going to supply and give us the means to accomplish that work. Whether this is missions work or whether this is work that he calls us to in our life, in our parenting, that God calls us to in the ministry of the church, any kind of work that God calls us to, he will always be the one who supplies that work. And so Paul brings back the same idea, my God will supply he brings it back to the Lord because really it is God's work. It is God's mission. It is God's purposes to send one who will be the promised seed, Christ of Galatians 3, the one who was promised in Genesis chapter 3, the one who's going to crush the serpent's head, comes to fruition in Galatians chapter 3. The seed is Christ. See, it is the work of God that God has been doing that he has been saving and securing his people throughout history through his covenants 
the Noahic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, and then the Davidic covenant, that there's going to be a king who's going to sit on the throne, he's going to rule forever. And then the new covenant he makes in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that he's going to give him a new heart. You see, there's been God's work throughout history. This is what God has been accomplishing. This is what God has been doing. And so obviously God is going to supply and give every single need to accomplish this work of glorifying his son. How is the son going to get glorified? Father, thou hast come, now glorify your son. John chapter 12. Well, we read in 13 through 17, the upper room discourse. How is he going to be glorified? When is he going to be nailed on a cross? And all men will look to him. And when they look to him and believe, they will be saved. Imputed righteousness. Not looking to themselves for salvation, but looking outside of themselves to another for that salvation. And so God is going to do the work to glorify his son. God is going to supply every need of yours. Sometimes we mix up needs and wants. Needs and desires. We say, Lord, can you supply this desire of mine? Well, we say it's a need, but really is a desire. You know, maybe some new Google Wi-Fi in my house with the mesh network, you know, three of them because the one router just doesn't work too, that quick. Ah, oh, Lord, I think I need a better car, you know, just to do the ministry. I'm picking up people, driving them to church or <laughs> maybe it's a MacBook Pro because, I, you know, I'm working on the website at the church or creating flyers or bulletins or whatever it is. We take needs and we turn them or we take desires and wants and we turn them into needs. But the idea here of need is something that is not a lack, right? The idea of not that you have the milk, but you're missing a little bit of it. No, the idea of a need is that you don't even have it at all. And so God is going to supply every single need of yours. You don't even have it, but God's going to supply it. It's the essential elements, that which you cannot live without. This is what God is going to supply. It may result in overwhelming abundance of a shower of grace. God supplies not out of his riches, but according to his riches. And there's a huge difference here. Because if, let's say, Bill Gates gave you out of his riches, he could just give you $10. But if Bill Gates gave you according to his riches, he might give you $10 million. Because he is worth billions, and to him, 10 million means nothing. This is how God supplies our needs. It's not out of his riches, but it's according to his riches, and you have experienced it in your life, and I know you have because I've experienced it in mine, and the church at Philippi definitely experienced it in their life. They gave when they had nothing, and God came and supplied their needs. <clears throat> when I was in seminary, I constantly heard these stories of pastors getting groceries dropped off at their front door and getting cl clothes given to their kids when they're newborns and not knowing where they come from. They just hear the doorbell ring. They open a the door, there's groceries, there's clothing. And I thought to myself, and these are real stories. I have like other pastors sharing this with me. I was like, wow, sounds like a fairy tale. I mean, I hear these stories. It's not happening in my life. <laughs> 
car's a little old. I don't know, walk into my driveway. Wow, a brand new car. But as I began ministry a number of years ago, I began seeing the Lord supplying my needs. He began to do this. You know, I needed to pay for a car insurance. I literally did not have the money to do that. My friend invited me to go speak at a teens camp in Fresno. I drove all the way out there, probably wasted a pretty penny on gas. And my friend, I wasn't expecting anything. I was just, I'm doing this out of a good desire in my heart. He gave me the exact amount of money that I needed to pay my car insurance. Our washer broke. Literally, the next week, we get a new washer and dryer set. I read on my screen, I was reading on my uh, screen a 27-inch iMac as I was going to seminary. It wasn't retina display. And in seminary, you're reading 400 pages a week, you're writing papers constantly. My eyes started getting old and I wasn't seeing well. And I could Every single year, it's like I got to bring that screen closer and closer to see it. And I'm not kidding you, I walked into my home and I clicked on the mouse and the screen turned on. I was like, why is the screen so clear? And one of my friends who was a neighbor actually bought me a brand new iMac with retina display. I mean, obviously, this is not like a need. I wouldn't have died without the old my iMac. But the idea here is God supplies, does he not? God supplies for all of our needs. I've seen him do it again and again. And so we do not need to worry when we give. God is going to take care of us. He is going to supply according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so we look at our own life, and I want you to look at your life, right? The job that you have, the place that you rent or live in, is it not the grace of God supplying those needs? He is faithful. He is faithful to provide. We give when it hurts, but he supplies according to his riches. Because ultimately, everything that we do have, whether it is our job, it is our health, it is our children. God has gifted these things to us. They're not our own. All is God's. And it is easier to open up your hands and to give when we understand it is all his. Because your health can be gone tomorrow. And so can your job. All your possessions can be burned in a fire. If you live in Santa Rosa or Paradise, California. And I'll be gone in an instant. God gives all of these things to us. And so we steward God's finances for God's glory. And this is what the church of Philippi did, and Paul is commending them. And he says that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership except you only. And he praises them, and he thanks them, and says, thank you, church, because what you have done, ultimately the fruit that this has led to, it increased to your credit, but I'm well supplied, and not only that, the gospel has gone forward. And the way that God is going to continue working is he's going to supply and give the means for you to continue this ministry and this work. Paul closes with a greeting as he always does in verse 21. And he shares this, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you your spirit. Now, as we close this morning with the, the book of Philippians, a very glorious book, a very great book. Yes, it doesn't have the Colossians 
uh, sermon praise of God of, uh, of verses 15 to 21 about the poem about Christ's excellencies. But it does have Philippians 2, this example of Christ. As we close this book, I believe that we as Christians, we struggle with a couple things in our life that I want to highlight. And as I highlight those two things, I then want to give us some principles that we can take away from the book of Philippians so you can remember what this book is about. So the first, <clears throat> the first thing that I feel like we struggle with that I have diagnosed over many years of doing ministry, we all struggle with short-termism. Has heard what that is, short-termism? So the symptoms of this disease is listening to a lot of sermons and forgetting at least 75% of the sermon in week one. And then 95% of the following weeks is lost in the black hole. A cure is yet to be found. But one thing that helps is principles. A principle summarizing an idea drawn from the truth of Scripture. And so 14 sermons that we've studied in the book of Philippians can be a lot of information. But I want to give you some succinct statements that are going to help you to remember these. Which leads me to the second, I believe, disease that we struggle with. It's called non-applicationism. The symptoms of this disease is knowing a lot of truth, yet not letting the truth change your attitude, thoughts, and actions. I want to read a quote about a, from a Bible writer who teaches hermeneutics. He said this, The whole purpose of Scripture is not to just help us gain knowledge about the Bible and God, to tickle our intellect or satisfy our curiosity, but to transform our lives. This is the purpose. And this is what God, why God has chosen us, we read in Ephesians, that we will be holy and blameless. He has chosen us to conform us to the image of his son. Romans 8.29, what does it mean that he's conforming us to the image of his son? That means we're transformed and we're changing into the image of Christ. Well, how are we transformed and changing? It is through the truth that we hear that we then apply into our life. That is the mission of our church. And so, here is the first principle that I want to leave you with. From the book of Philippians, the gospel is the centerpiece and the driving force for all the life in the church. Or in short, the gospel is the centerpiece for all the life in the church. This is why we fellowship to share the fruit of the gospel. Is that why we're coming to home group this evening to share in the fruit of the gospel? What is the fruit of the gospel? It is our salvation. It is our vivification, our new life in Christ. We share that together. We take the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be doing next week, to remind ourselves of the gospel. We confess sin because we're not yet glorified. Why? To experience the power of the gospel. And so nine times in this book, the gospel is spoken. In chapter 1, verse 5, we talk about the partnership of the gospel. Why? Because it is to battle against aimlessness. We partner in the gospel to battle against aimlessness. With defense and confirmation of the gospel to battle against error. In verse, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says it's really served to advance the gospel to battle against stagnation. In verse 16, the defense of the gospel to battle against contamination. And he calls us to live lives worthy of the gospel to battle against ridicule. In verse 27, the faith of the gospel to battle against fallacy. Timothy served with Paul in the gospel to battle against laziness. And Paul talks about the beginning of the gospel, the time that it began to battle against wastefulness. And so first is the gospel is the centerpiece, the driving force for all that is in the life of the church. Second, humility. 
Humility is the key that unlocks the doors of unity and growth. Humility is the key that's going to unlock the door of unity and growth. Throughout this letter, Paul has been urging the church and calling them, live lives worthy of the gospel. Well, how can you do that? Have the mind of Christ. And he sets before the church of Philippi this example of Christ, who although was God, humbled himself, put aside his entitlement, and became man and served and sacrificed on the cross. Syntek and Udiah were having disagreements which led toward disunity and a lack of gospel growth. And Paul is setting before them the example of Christ and saying, follow the role model who is Christ. And not only that, Paul is saying, set aside all of your accolades of chapter 3, all your accomplishments, and remember that all of that in comparison to the glory of Christ is dung. The third principle is this, Christian virtues of joy and peace are relational, not situational. Christian virtues are relational, not situational. Paul is in jail. Paul is in circumstances that are hard and tough. But what Paul is not doing is he's not complaining. Paul has a clear mindset because he has this relationship with Jesus Christ that is driving his thinking and it's driving his emotions and it's driving his words. Paul's focus on Christ is what motivated him in his ministry. And this is why he writes the words, whether he's going to die in jail or that he's going to live and continue to help the church at Philippi for him to live as Christ and to die is gain. Ultimately, it is because we as believers have the resources within us so we don't have to go to the substitutes without us. F.B. Meyer says this, and I want to encourage you with this quote, Christ is the essence of our life, the model of our life, the aim of our life, the solace of our life, the reward of our life. Think of the prepositions that express relationship. We live in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, through Christ, and from Christ. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of life. He is truly the Alpha and Omega, the A and Z, and every letter in between. And so, Christian virtues are relational and not situational. Fourth principle is this. Your thinking governs your doing. Your thinking governs your doing. This little book speaks about thinking more than any other of Paul's epistles. Because our mind rules our actions. You are no more the person that you are than what you think in your mind. And throughout this whole letter, Paul is calling them to think differently. To think differently. To think with humility, to have the attitude and mind of Christ. So, how are we doing when it comes to the gospel being the centerpiece of our life? How are we doing when it comes to humility being the key to unlock the doors of unity? How are we doing when it comes down to the Christian virtues of being relational, not situational, and our relationship with Christ? How are we doing in our thinking? And lastly, it is this. It's what we talked about this morning. Partnership is the means to fulfill the cause of Christ. Fifth principle. Partnership is the means to fulfill the cause of Christ, partnering in the gospel, supplying the needs so that Christ is proclaimed. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians is more than a theological treatise. 
It's more than just suffering and thankfulness and the incarnation, but it is the example of Christ humbling himself. It is calling us to live a life where we are okay being rejected and not having enough. Call to living in the walking in the example of Christ. See in every circumstance as an opportunity to proclaim Christ. Philippians shows us Paul's deep concern for the church. He cared that there were these two women who were disagreeing. And he writes a whole letter on this idea of disunity and pride so that we as a church can learn likewise. To strive towards unity, to strive towards humility, and to live lives worthy of the gospel. To partner with others who are doing the work of, of spreading the gospel so that Christ is glorified and he is honored. There are timeless principles rather than time-bound rules that we have studied. And we praise God for his word that shapes our thinking, that fashions our walking, and that ultimately displays to us the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for your help now. This book has been a joy to study. This book has brought us so much truth. It has challenged our thinking. It has, it has shaped the way that we do think and how we walk and live in life. We're reminded to walk worthy of the gospel, to look at the example of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, how good it is to also be reminded that we are justified in Christ and it's not our accomplishments, but it is what Christ has done. Praise you, Lord, for that. You're reminding us that we ought to live like citizens of a heavenly kingdom, being mindful and spending our time on things that are above, not on the things of earth. You reminded us how to have peace and joy in the midst of the chaotic world that we live in, that ultimately you are the anchor that settles really the waves and the storms of our life. And so we praise you and we just ask, Father, would you continue to impress these truths upon our heart through your spirit? May you continue to display the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, that we may love him more and more day by day and behold him so that we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen.